Hey everybody, it's Louie here from Kick the Jukebox. And this is Kyle. And uh, we just wanted to let you know that we just started a Patreon account for this podcast. Now, why would we do that? Well, the reason is we love doing this podcast for you guys, but we want to keep doing it. And we just need a little extra cheddar cheese to fund the hosting fees and the time and cost it takes to edit. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about it, if you want to just throw us $1 a month, that would help us so much with the uh, amount of time and the money that it takes to run this podcast. And think about all of the amazing music and all of the amazing artists that you've been hepped to because of Kick the Jukebox. And if you guys donate any money at all, we will give you a shout out by your actual name or any alias you want to go by. We will acknowledge your existence and that is what you want. Have your existence acknowledged through media. Yeah, absolutely. Through Kick the Jukebox, have your existence acknowledged. It's going to be very exciting. So check it out, www.patreon.com slash kickthejukebox. And we will post it in this episode's description as well. Now on with the show. Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. <laughs> and here we are, episode three. I can't believe we've made it this far. Feels like only three months ago we were recording episode one. <laughs> I can't believe it! Dreams do come true. <laughs> they really do. It's really an incredible thing. So... Uh, here we are, or we're in the middle of June almost. Kyle, how are you doing? What's been going on? Um, I've been good. Um, been hanging out, uh, doing some more My Dark Little Corner shows. For those of you who don't know, I have a pop-punk parody band called My Dark Little Corner. Um, when you hear this, we have a show on June 16th, and then we have another show, our final show of this run of shows at the Magnet Theater uh, on Friday, this is the one you really got to go to. You got to see Friday, July 19th, 2017. If you're listening to this in the future. Yeah. Um, and but, if you want to meet me and Kyle, July 19th is the time to do it. Yes. Uh, Friday at 1130 at the Magnet Theater. Uh, but um, other than that, I've just been krillin'. Yeah, you've been krillin'? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. So you've been, you've been, you've been straight krillin'. Yep. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, mm. What music have you been krillin' to? Ooh, I have been krillin' to... Okay, so since our last podcast, mm-hmm. I have pretty much been listening non-stop to Wu-Tang and Wu-Tang-affiliated uh, albums, and I've just... It's kind of been crazy. I just can't stop listening to all things Wu-Tang. And in particular, I've been listening to and fascinated by and didn't know much about, um, but now I've listened to a ton of it, um, the Grave Diggers album from 1994, Six Feet Deep, and particularly the track um, Blood Brothers. I grew up with the violent island of Shaolin, 55-4 and 6 4 10 4. When Jack Pot was hot, I was not. A rusty-ass child with tears and snots. The quiet denies how to master my thoughts. My skinny frail body couldn't fuck with the sports. Six feet two, still whack on the court. So I stalk New York with a black bitch fork. My style Okay. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about this. What has drawn you to the track Blood Brothers? So in particular, the track Blood Brothers was interesting to me because before I heard the album, this album, Six Feet Deep, um, has sort of 
wrongfully and controversially been was branded as the first horrorcore album. Yeah, very notably so. Yes. It's I think it's it's named in Fangoria's list. <laughs> I learned really? this today. Yeah, it's named in Fangoria's list in 2009. They did top 10 horrorcore albums. Really? And this album is definitely part of that. Yeah. It, interesting. Yeah. Um I think it is interesting. There are elements of horrorcore, or what later came to be known as horrorcore. Mm-hmm. Certain themes, like the song "One Eight Hundred Suicide," mm-hmm. "Diary of a Madman." These uh, songs have themes and maybe hooks that address sort of themes of horrorcore, which are traditionally like overt and really depraved depictions and graphic depictions of violence. Mm-hmm. Sort of like. Horror, it's just like a horror rap. Yeah, horror rap. Uh, uh, yeah, basically a rap that derives most of its influence from horror books, movies, yeah, uh, comics, those sorts of things. Yeah, um, and I'm not quite sure if this album fits exactly into that genre, especially when you pair them with other later, more defining bands and artists of that genre, notably like early 3-6 Mafia mm-hmm. or Necro, if you ever listen to Necro, <laughs> mm-hmm. Nec- which was something I did when I was like 13 and was mesmerized by, he's just, now it's like the most awful, disgusting thing I could ever possibly listen to. Would you say that horrorcore is a genre that's like really great for 13-year-old boys? Oh my god, it's perfect. Uh, uh... <laughs> The Thexorcist. <laughs> Necro's album, The Sexorcist, was, uh, I mean, it's horrible. And I don't think it's like, it never really got mainstream, but like now it really just like, it sounds really, it did not age well. No, it's, horrorcore it's, it's, it's does it's not very, age well. It's very much of its era. Yeah. I remember being exposed to horrorcore on the school bus yeah. in middle school yep. in like ninth grade specifically yeah. and I think it maybe was a Grave Diggers album oh really I don't know for sure hmm. but I was really excited by horrorcore yeah. because I was so into horror movies and books at the time right I was at the time like a really big Nightmare on Elm Street and Stephen King fan uh-huh. so for me it was sort of a, a way for me to uh, connect and, and identify with this rap subgenre when otherwise, you know, rap couldn't have been the furthest thing for me growing up, you know, in Canada uh, as a 13 year old boy, 14 year old boy. Hmm. So, yeah, so for you, do you feel like you had the same sort of connection with it? Is that why? Or Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I, I mean, just like as an angry kid who just wanted to listen to the most fucked up possible music I yeah. could possibly find, yeah. Um, I wasn't really exposed to Gravediggers as much, but um, listening... I mean, this album is just, like, a hidden gem. And um, hidden, at least in the Wu-Tang catalog. Sure. Um, And it's really... I mean, this song in particular, I love it because I think it sort of stands alone. It doesn't really... It it has dark themes, but the, the... the beat and the and the instrumentation is a lot more laid back. It's sort of of the it's got more of an airy early '90s feel. But um, it was produced. Most of the album was produced by Prince Paul. So the Grave Diggers is uh, notably the two most notable members are RZA from Wu Tang and yeah. Prince Paul. And the, and the whole project is really fascinating because they met originally and formed this group before Thirty Six Chambers. Because they were both on Tommy Boy when 
he knew Prince Paul back when he was uh, Rakim, Prince mm-hmm. Rakim, and released his single uh, Ooh, We Love You, Rakim, which is really, really bad. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, they got to know each other, and they both were, for different reasons, really frustrated with the industry. Prince Paul, notably, he produced um, Three Feet High and Rising, the De La Soul album, yes. and which has been a nightmare for him because that was the first album to get sued out their ass for all the samplings. Yes. And now you pretty much can't find it anywhere. I mean, you can't. De La Soul's whole catalog is like, they voided it um, from the internet. So he's just, he and he had other issues with Tommy Boy. So this album was sort of like, they all took on different names to record it. And this was like their tirade against the industry. And I think that's where the anger is coming from. But there's a lot of really interesting, dark, deep samples and tracks on this that it's sort of influenced by Wu-Tang in the same sphere, but it's a little cleaner production. Like like a very East Coast album, but kind of stands alone for being airy and dark in this unique way. Yeah, I, I would say when it comes to this specific track that... It certainly is uh, atmospheric yeah. in a way that reminds me of 36 Chambers. Mm-hmm. And the production on it reminds me of a lot of horror soundtracks mm. from movies. But lyrically, the content I would not say is particularly horror-oriented compared to other tracks on this album right. and other horrorcore albums in general. The horrific stuff that these guys are rapping about is more about real-life things going on you know in their lives on the street when it comes to drug use you know Mm -hmm. there's a line about screams in the street which are not about you know being (laughs) attacked by a vampire yeah Yeah, exactly like something hokey you know it's about it's about drug drug use infiltrating infiltrating the streets and infiltrating their friends um uh, i think it's interesting that they decide to go that route with this uh however there's still the thematic and aesthetic equation with the horror mm-hmm. genre as well in yeah. this track. Yeah. Um, I love Riza's verse on this track because he's like, the, the darkness that he's talking about is he, he, he talks about how pre- it's like really interesting and vulnerable for him because on a lot of the Wu-Tang stuff, he's pretty aggressive as just both in violent imagery and sort of he's like the abbot, the wise, um, very confident teller of truths. But in this one, he talks about being uh, a scrawny kid who wasn't good enough for sports yes. and like he's still 6'2 and can't play basketball so instead he takes a piss pitchfork and roams the streets <laughs> um, I mean it's just it's really interesting and dark and vulnerable in that way I think it's really interesting and, and, and unique to this project and I think Riza is very cerebral and intellectual he's known to adopt different lyrical and production styles for different persona he takes on. Mm-hmm. So he had the Bobby Digital project, which is supposed to be him at his most vulgar and sort of um, depraved nihilistic party boy. And then the Rizza, he's like the abbot, the wise monk, truth teller. And this, the Rizza Recta in, on mm-hmm. this project, he's sort of, at times he's like really violent and aggressive, but he's like sort of vulnerable like a like a kid you know who's back up against the wall mm-hmm. i i agree with that i really appreciated that verse from him and it was mm-hmm. definitely unique to hear it from him mm-hmm. uh, i found it really refreshing especially after 36 chambers last month i thought yep. it was really interesting yep this song has been on my mind and this album has been on my mind but i know there has been a very interesting 
song that has been on your mind this month with a lot of really interesting history. Yes, and some history that I have not shared with you specifically so that we could talk about it. Yep. So, uh, just a little bit of background before I, I get to my song. This has been a very interesting month for me, and I'm not going to go all Mark Marin on us on this <laughs> yeah. podcast. You know, I was seeing a guy. I got dumped by this dude. It was a very sad thing to happen. I was very upset about it. Yeah. And whenever that happens, uh, I think this is kind of an interesting, unique thing about being a gay guy, is you end up examining what sort of gay guy you are Hmm. and what sort of person you are when it fits within sort of the firmament of like queerness Mm. both within new york city and in the world Mm -hmm. i have been thinking a lot about the queer music that i listen to Hmm. and when that happened completely coincidentally my friend bowen yang who is a prominent gay comedian who uh, hosts a podcast with his friend Matt Rogers called Les Culturistas, Mm -hmm. he posted on Facebook a collaborative Spotify playlist for Pride Month, Mm. which is a history of queer music 101. And I ended up contributing to it. And something about this playlist is it ended up being exhaustive. Mm. The people that contributed, I think, are highly knowledgeable. Mm. And the playlist, I'm going to post it in the description for this episode, it's clocking in currently at nine hours of music. This is the playlist the, that you contributed to? Yes, the oh, queer so the cool. queer music playlist, yeah. 101. And I only contributed maybe about 10 songs or so. Mm-hmm. But it made me think about, well, what sort of you know music do I identify with as a gay guy mm. uh, comparatively maybe to the way that other gay people identify or connect with music? And, you know, I've actually always really struggled with this um, mm. because, you know, I certainly appreciate Lady Gaga or Katy Perry as much as the next guy. Mm-hmm. But I feel like music's always had this relationship in my life with me that goes beyond the surface and and really speaks to me in a way that feels like it's multi-tiered and Mm. and multi-leveled. And very often, specifically when I'm on first dates, Mm. that is not the case. Mm. That's not the case with the people I'm dating. Mm. And a lot of this playlist certainly is iconic stuff that is really important Mm. including like you know Liza Minnelli tracks Mm. and Barbra Streisand tracks Mm. and disco tracks you know like uh you know Le Chic uh like stuff like that um so I decided to try to contribute stuff that was I feel very important to uh the history of queer music but that was Uh, a little more off the beaten path Mm. and a little rougher and a little punkier. Mm. Um, So some of the other stuff that I contributed is 53rd and 3rd is on that because it's important. You know, it's the Ramon song that's about male prostitution and it was written by, from Dee Dee's point of view and it's Mm -hmm. definitely part of the queer experience. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And then also um, I contributed like a Jane County track. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, her cover of You Think You're a Boy, But You're Really a Girl, which oh, is an old, I think it's an old Trog song <laughs> uh, from the 60s. And then this is the track I want to discuss today. This track that's called uh, Jet Boy and is by Elton Motello. <laughs> 
drives me wild I like to hit him on the head until he's dead The sight of blood is such a high So Jet Boy, okay, so let's talk about Jet Boy. So we just listened to a little clip from it. <laughs> and for a lot of listeners, you may be saying to yourself, wait a second, I know that song. That's that goofy punk new wave song from the early 80s, late 70s that's called Saplan Pour Moi and is in French and is by Plastic Bertrand. Now, okay, I certainly knew the Plastic Bertrand version before I knew the Elton Motello version. And here's what's going on with that. This is uh, Kyle. Yeah. This is this is the surprise I'm going to drop on you. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a track uh, composed by studio musicians that was instrumental, and then the same record company, within the course of a few months, gave it to two different artists, <laughs> unbeknownst to each other. And this track is two different artists' vocal interpretations. Of the song. No way. Wait. So they... Hold on a sec. (laughs) So, so wait. They had the backing track, Mm -hmm. and they both wrote those vocal parts independent of each other? Yes. They sound exactly the same. They do (laughs) sound somewhat the same. However, really, if you listen to the Plastic Bertrand version... It's definitely more wordy, Mm. and it's a a little more complex. Mm -hmm. I know that it's in French, so that certainly changes the cadence of it. But I do feel that it's it's more complex. Yeah, the the team on this, I just want to say it out loud, was Jeff Stax on guitar, John Valky on bass, and Bob Darch on drums. Mm. And I think this, the backing of this... Sounds really like a old school rock and roll rave up, mm. like very much like a Ramones track. Mm. This owes a lot to like fifties dance music. There's yeah. a saxophone part. Mm. Uh, this is this is really where punk new wave and like fifties dance connected mm-hmm. in a really uh, noticeable way. Yeah. So uh, just to finish the discussion about the Plastique Bertrand version, which we could talk about properly (laughs) for a longer amount of time, but Mm -hmm. the big thing about that version is, first of all, it's hilarious. It's super well-written. The lyrics are great if you read the translations. I've never actually read the... What does Saplan pour moi mean? Saplan pour moi is French slang for it's like totally cool, man. Uh, It's like basically slang for it's smooth. Uh. And it's a... What at the time was an outdated expression. It was a 60s expression. It was sort of hippie-ish when he did it. And it's sort of about him roaming through his day. Mm. Yeah, and the other... I mean, my favorite line from that is, you know, one of the lines that's... Eng- it's in English. He sings, I am the king of the divan. It's <laughs> like, I'm like the king of, like, the bedspread. Which is so fucking great. <laughs> yeah. It's about him, like, lying around in bed, and that's why he says it. Oh, man. But it's so great. Uh, now, here's the big secret about that song, because that song has a whole other layer to it as well. There was a big scandal a few <laughs> years ago because the lead singer, Plastic Bertrand, he wrote and sang all the other shit on that album, but he did not sing that track. His uh, producer did, and then he had to pretend like he sang it. Uh, For literally 30 years, he kept this secret. Really? Yeah, until it was revealed. <laughs> That's like. amazing. So so this song really has such a crazy history. Oh my god, yeah. 
Yeah, so that that's on the, that's all on the subplot for moi side, but I did want to talk about all that because that's all crazy to me. That's amazing. Well, I, <laughs> I that's oh my god, that that is a lot more than I even expected when you told me you were going to drop some bombs on me. <laughs> I know, like uh, this is a, this is a weird this was a weird thing that happened. Yeah, and then on the other side, here's this version uh, Je- uh, called Jet Boy. And this version was written by this dude named Alan Ward, who's also the singer, and he did actually sing it. <laughs> and I've listened to a lot of the other uh, uh, Elton Motello stuff this month, and I'd say I would say that he's a cross between um, like Devo and mm. like Joe Jackson, mm. like, and it's a little Oingo Boingo-y as well. Mm. Like, definitely fits in that new wave pocket, but it's mm. a little kind of smoother, I would mm. say. Now, this song is very interesting because it was written about a 15-year-old boy Mm. having a relationship with an older man Mm. who then... Very very explicit, not explicit in terms of like explicit sex, but like explicitly, he gave me head. It's not, it's not, there's no innuendo. It's very direct. It's very direct. And it came out in the late 70s and it was unsurprisingly banned from most radio stations and Mm -hmm. one radio station in the u.s was fined for playing this song which is not a surprise you know because it's super explicit and there's some really interesting queer aspects to this at play Mm -hmm. that uh, i just want to unpack for a second Mm -hmm. for my own psychological well-being here so like first of all uh, it's about a relationship between a younger guy and an older guy, mm. which in mainstream society is basically considered verboten, mm. but happens a lot in the queer community. And it certainly happened a lot in the 70s, mainly because these young gay guys did not have role models. Mm. So the men that they were hooking up with also were their role models. Mm. and But that gives the whole song... Uh, like a real threatening edge. It's mm. the song's very aggressive. Yeah, it, as you said before, it like doesn't pussyfoot around. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's like very unabashed about what's happening. Mm. And then also, it ties in a lot of sexual themes with a lot of very violent themes as well. Yeah. There's the lines about "I want to slash him till he's dead," you know, because what the song's about is is the the older man leaves the younger man for a woman. Mm-hmm. So then that explores a whole other aspect of queerness in that there's like this whole bisexuality thing going on here mm-hmm. and perhaps explores, and this is me reading into it a little bit, the um, anger that bisexual people experience towards them in the greater queer gay community, mm-hmm. which, you know, I've always thought was really unfair. But here's, you know, from the perspective of this kid mm-hmm. who basically wants to kill his ex-lover because his ex-lover is now with a woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, he can't just like who he likes, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it, there's so much going on for this, like, two and a half minute little sort yeah. of rave up pop song. It's not lyrically dense either. It's um, pretty sparse, but very precise and very direct so um this actually reminds me of a guy i used to work with who i was friendly with um i used to work be a cook at a restaurant and uh this guy i used to work with um he called himself johnny underage um and he that's how he was known and he he actually wrote uh i feel comfortable telling this story because he actually published an article for noisy called 
turning tricks to get my fix, which I recommend you go check out. But he ran he was from upstate New York and he ran away and was pretty much homeless living in the city as a teenager mm-hmm. during the late seventies, early eighties. The time to be doing that. Yeah. Although it, it certainly is very uh there's an epidemic of that now, so I shouldn't say really? that. Oh, absolutely. Like there's a huge percentage of the population of homeless youth in New York City are, New York are, City. are LGBTQ. I'm, I'm sure. And um, But his experience was, I mean, I listened to the song and I immediately thought of his story. And he, many of his early sexual encounters and, you know, finding himself as a gay man was with much older men in New York, uh, sort of anonymously um, for money. Mm-hmm. And he always had this sort of, complicated somewhat antagonistic relationship with these men Mm -hmm. because he is finding himself and he's a young teenager with a sexual drive Mm -hmm. but at the same time he's contemptuous of these older guys how could you want to have sex with me i'm so young so it's this really complicated you know he 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 sort of despised the people that he went out and sought you know sexual relationship with and he's a young he's a teenager at the time so i mean i couldn't help thinking of this and i recommend everyone oh also everyone should go out and check i mean i I barely knew i I kind of only worked with this guy for a few months like Mm -hmm. many years ago but i I don't he always stuck with me he was a very funny interesting guy but he um he also was the lead singer of a very um influential um hardcore punk band in the 90s called No Fucker. So you should check out No Fucker and then you should check out Johnny Underage, um, his uh, noisy article, Turning Tricks to Get My Fix. And I think he's coming out with a memoir soon. I did not plan on talking about this, so this is not a uh, this is not a plug for him at all, but it just... No, it's, it's definitely an interesting connection. Yeah. And uh, I think that when it comes to queer themes explored through music... There's very few examples of songs that specifically deal with this aspect of Mm. gay life, which is very much an aspect of it that I think uh, most gay guys have gone through in Mm. some way or another. Mm. Either age discrepancies and people you're hooking up with, you know, either on the on the older side or the younger side. And uh, it's something that I think this song it, it captures the conflict, the internal conflict of that in a way that it, it deserves a little bit of credit for that in mm. a way that I don't feel it's ever really been discussed before. Absolutely. And even for it to be released and be played on radio in order for it to get fined is amazing to me. I mean, that's, I mean, that, that took balls for whoever even played it in the first place yeah. at this time. And it's just crazy to think, I, I mean, I thought that the, uh, Plastic Bertrand version was a cover. Sure. But um, mm-hmm. even even now, it is sort of tragic to see the uh, the place that the Plastic Bertrand song has in popular culture. I mean, I first heard it in a Vonage commercial, yeah. and it's uh, sort of tragic um, how that song has been solidified in the popular culture, and I'm sure they've made a lot, a lot of money from that song. And... Um, the uh, Jet Boy is, uh, you know, nobody knows. Nobody knows the song. Yeah, it's true that definitely Jet Boy is a much more underground version of the same song. Uh, but you know, this is just on Wikipedia, which I really love. Uh, in the entry for this song, Elton Motello, or I'm sorry. Alan Ward, who is the uh, man who wrote the lyrics and sang the song, the singer of Elton Motello, he said, 
but judging by the emails I receive, my lyric has touched many more mm. people and seems to ring a chord in many more hearts than the French one will ever do. Mm. That's why I wrote it. Mm. If I was meant to be rich, it would have happened. But I am rich in the knowledge that my thoughts will never disappear. I mean, he answered... He, he, that's the answer. I know. I <laughs> that's think that's the answer. He nailed it. That's pretty definitive. Yeah, and it's right? kind of special. And I, I think that this, I love that. That's so cool. And and you know, I hope that this song honestly continues to have a place in the hearts of kids that feel off the beaten path, the kids that are growing up feeling isolated. You know, even beyond just like little queer boys and queer girls. Mm-hmm. You know, people uh, punks of all stripes and creeds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I love it. Cheers to Jet Boy. Cheers. By Elton <laughs> Motello. Yeah, absolutely. One sounds much lighter and more fun than the other sounds more consummately dark. Definitely, I agree with that. Yeah. So now, just, I have no good segues for this. So I'm just going to go into it. Yeah. Because Kyle and I have another find this is important. This is a big one. So, uh, we were on a trip to LA, mm-hmm. and we were dumpster diving, as yep. we are wont to do. To... I was just um, hungry. Kyle was hungry. <laughs> yeah. We ended up finding a loaf of bread that was about three quarters good. Yeah. It was raisin bread. It was delicious. I know. My God. And the raisins, um, they're already dry. <laughs> no, they're already dry. So, they're already good, even yeah. if they're in a dumpster. Yeah. But as we were digging around... We found, like, an old reel-to-reel tape. Amazing. And on the tape, we were shocked to find, you will not believe this, a band meeting Mm -hmm. of the germs. Yep. So we have this band meeting of the germs that no one's ever heard before. This is what we do. We deliver exclusives to you, the listener. You care about this. We care about this. You care about it more. Yeah. So we, without further ado, are going to give you this, um, this band meeting. Uh, this is an early band meeting from the germs. Let's, let's give it a listen. Yeah. So it's me, Belinda Carlisle, and like I'm taking notes and doing minutes. So let's do a little um, group attendance check in. Say here when you hear your name, okay? Darby, Darby Crash. I'm here. All right, Darby Crash here. I'm here. Pat Smear. Okay, Pat Smear is absent. Lorna Doom. No, 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 Lorna Doom. Connie Catheter. Oh boy, a lot of people missing from this band meeting today. Victor Vitral. Okay. Penelope Painstake. Susie Stigmata. No one is here. Nobody's taking this band seriously. Okay, I I need to go through the rest of the names for minutes. Here we go. Donnie Dumpster. Tammy Tampon. Maybe one of these guys will come through the door. Needle Jones. Needle Jones has not made the last three band meetings. Heroin Rick. No, no Heroin Rick. Mickey Dolenz. Where is... 
It's not like he has anything better to do. He's right never now. gonna show. No. He's never gonna show. He said he was in this He's band. He's never gonna show. He said he was in this band. Junkie Janice, Don Balls. Okay, none of them are here. None of them are. None of them are here. It seems oh. like like we're the only two that are taking this band remotely seriously, Darby. Oh, t- oh my God. Oh, just get on with it. Okay, okay, okay. You're right. Get on with it. All right, so first order of business, song ideas. The last time we all played, the germs just went on stage and we all played our instruments and screamed until we were dragged off the stage, which took about four minutes. Love it. So let's Love it. let's talk. Let's keep with, doing that. We want to get. No, let's keep doing that. No, 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 no. We want. No, uh, Darby. I, I actually, I actually found a severed arm in a dumpster. Let's just, let's just bring that on stage and throw it at people. No, no words. Darby, if Come we on. want the germs to be a success, we need them to mean business, oh. and that means that maybe if we throw the severed arm around the stage, we do it with a purpose. You know? Oh fuck yeah! Well, you said you said I couldn't pee on anyone anymore, so uh I mean, what's even the point? What is even the point? Okay, so if you can't pee on anyone anymore, it's because I want us to move towards having a more mainstream sound and aesthetics that we could probably be signed Uh, by a label. There's the possibility of that, Darby. You know what I think? Okay, I'm writing that down in the minutes as A R R G H C H G R. Darby, you need to start at least using words when we're meeting, right? Uh, there you go, Ventura. Do you want to write a song, maybe, about Ventura? Ventura Boulevard? That might be good for a song, a good lyric for a song. Fine. Fine. Oh, Darby, thank you for agreeing. Okay, uh, good. So you're going to write a song about Ventura. Agreed, yeah. right? Okay, great. Let's move on to the next order of business. I'm still in love with you. Excuse me? Uh, um, I'm still in love with you. I, I'm ne- I never told anyone this, and it's uh, not on the record, and, but uh, Darby Crash, I'm in love with Belinda Carlisle, and uh, I, wrote, I actually wrote a song for you, so maybe we could play this next time. Uh, what? I, I'm really... Th- Flattered, and I, I don't know how to feel right now. What? What's the title of this song? What's it about? Um, fucking love and sex. You know what? That's that's actually really romantic. Yeah. Um, you know, my ideal man would be a neocon Republican staffer, but oh! you're changing my mind about this. What? Oh, oh, Darby, oh! let me get you a bucket. Oh! Oh! Darby, oh. into the bucket, Darby. Oh, into the no. bucket. I'm rubbing, I'm rubbing your back. Oh. You okay? I just sang the song. That was the song? <laughs> yeah. You vomited on the floor and into a bucket? That's the song. For me? That's the song. Darby. Wow. Yeah. I just, I don't know. You're changing my mind about a few things that I thought were maybe really important to me. Maybe you are the man for me. Well, it's fucking keep going with the meaning. You're right. I'm sorry. So we can we're veering off track. So I can um so I can uh, um drink soap. I agree. Okay, okay. Moving on. Next up uh, on the list of things to discuss is band aesthetics. How about I just go around and I wear um a goat's uh skin. The skin of a goat? Yeah. Okay, I think that's a actually a really good idea. I yeah. think that would really differentiate us. 
Now here's the question. But we have to kill the goat live so the skin is uh, still uh, fresh for, for a while. Are you suggesting we kill the goat on stage and then crawl into its skin like the goat is a tauntaun? I guess exactly. Darby. Exactly. Darby. Exactly. I don't know. I, I, I just don't know if that's going to work logistically on stage. What? Are you kidding me? I, 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 I have killed so many creatures and just no one has been around to see it. Trust me, it's easy to do. Darby, look at me in the eyes. Look at Darby. Good job. You looked at me right away. Look at me. Look at me for a second in the, in the face. I want you to look at me and tell me that you think this is going to work. Because I don't think it's going to work. But if you think it's going to work, anything to make this band a success in my book is good. Well, I'll take your monosyllabic valley boy speak to mean that you are saying yes. Ah! Awesome. Oh, is there anything else that you want to bring up, maybe, about anything? Um, yeah, uh, there's a dead body outside, and I was poking it for a while, and, um, do you want to come out and poke it with me, maybe? Darby, I would like nothing more. Hey, guys, it's me, Mickey Dolan. Sorry I'm late for the meeting. Mickey Dolan! Oh, my God! Yeah! <laughs> Well, you, you heard it here first. That's that was a real band meeting. Yeah, I didn't know the the germs had so many members. I know that's crazy. None of them ever get credited. That's kind of unbelievable. Um, Kyle, Kyle, before we move on, I just want to ask you: How many listeners do you think? We're completely lost with us doing an improvised <laughs> sketch about the germs. Like, uh, let's talk about the germs for a second because they yeah. play into the history and the story oh. of our band of uh, our band and album of the month, anyway. Which is okay. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> it. So it's uh, it's really one of my favorite albums. I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm actually a little worried I'm going to cry on the air wow, talking yeah. about this album. We're going to talk about the album Beauty and the Beat. By the Go Go's. one but um uh, where should we start well let's talk about the germs first sure. let's talk about the the yeah. la punk scene that sure. got the go-go's sure so the germs the germs were a really unique group mm -hmm. uh who were really quintessentially punk mm -hmm. came up in the 70s the lead members were darby crash and pat smear mm -hmm. and darby crash i think took the entire idea of being a punk 
to a whole new level. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was the re like he is the consummate punk. Yeah, I think in yeah. uh, in every way because he was like a, a cuter, less reprehensible, more accessible, cooler Gigi Allen. I think that's really <laughs> smart. Yes, right. I think that's good to compare him to Gigi Allen. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. He he is fairly accessible, and he did sort of have these pretty boy good looks. Yeah. Uh, for all the people who love man listening, <laughs> I mean, definitely, you know, I'd tap that if he was still around. Um, Can we? <laughs> I, I'll go on the record uh, on saying that. Louis, yeah. Louis Perlman, Darby Crash, I'd tap that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I hope that some listeners write some Louis Darby Crash slash oh, fiction. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, we are. Okay, please. Uh, and if they want to send it to us, where can they find out about the podcast or reach out to us? Or <laughs> We can do this at the end of the episode. Okay, you can find we're... us on Facebook and Twitter and all that, but we'll okay. do that at the end of the episode. But definitely, I think that would be totally amazing. Yeah. So there they were. They were literally, you know, as that tape that we found stated, they did shows specifically at The Mask, which was a really, really grungy rundown uh, club that a lot of those guys played at. They would do their early shows were literally them getting up on stage, screaming and yelling, playing their instruments, and then not actually singing songs. They had not written any songs. Eventually, they did prove themselves to be fairly proficient songwriters, Mm -hmm. I would say. But I would say that the songwriting was not as important as the aesthetics while they were alive, or while Darby Crash was alive, or the mystique that Darby Crash left behind. And sadly, with that band, lots of drugs. Yeah. And really pretty sad, desperate people Mm -hmm. who were never really able to find the success that they craved and he he died in a suicide pact with his girlfriend in december of 1980 the same day that john lennon died thus robbing him of any fame that he would have experienced after the fact which is what he's actually going for right Uh, i think yeah it did sort of rob him of his legacy a bit although i mean he did sort of have a it was sort of a sid and nancy sort of situation Mm -hmm. with him to the la sid and nancy but like but the only difference was that Darby, I, I don't know. He seemed to me to be, first of all, he was a more, he seemed to be more of a creative driving force of the band, whereas Sid Vicious was just the face of yeah. the Sex Pistols. And he, I mean, he, he didn't write any songs. He didn't really contribute anything other than an aesthetic, whereas Darby Crash was um, pretty integrally involved with the musical aspects of the germs even though it was really rudimentary and a lot of what makes them so cool is what's missing you know mm-hmm. from their music it's pretty raw and rudimentary and if you hear their live music it's like if some punk stuff is indecipherable he is 100% indecipherable yes. when he played live because yeah. he would just get so 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 drunk mm-hmm. and they are such a pure expression of that whole scene yeah because they weren't uh, under the influence of a Svengali like the Sex Pistols were, right? Yeah, uh, or a you know influential producer mm-hmm. like both the Ramones or X were. Yeah, they 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 were really very raw and, and very indicative of the whole idea that 
basically anybody that wanted to be in a band yep. could be in a band yep. and could give it a go and achieve notoriety could at they, the very least. Yeah, they could give it a go, go. <laughs> well, yeah, and <laughs> and the Go Go's connection yeah. is that Belinda Carlisle, uh, as was revealed in that tape, was actually a member of uh, the Germs. Very briefly, right? Yeah, 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 very briefly, and she was supposed to play with them, and I think she was supposed to be their drummer, but she had this long stint of mononucleosis, mm -hmm. which kept her from playing with them, and then her next musical project was formed with Jane Wheedlin mm -hmm. uh, on, apparently on the steps of a party. So the, the original members of the Go-Go's were Belinda Carlisle and Jane mm -hmm. Wheedlin, who were in the version that we know and love, yeah. and then also Margot Oliveira and Alyssa Bello, mm -hmm. who were other members of the L.A. punk scene. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the Go-Go's were so sloppy <laughs> at the beginning that no one paid them any mind. And it wasn't until the other band members were added who had some musical chops. I think the famous quote about their initial performance, I don't know where it came from, but notably that it was said, um, which is a great uh, early quote to get about any band, especially a punk band, was they said, the Go-Go's Go are to music what uh, botulism is to tuna. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they weren't very well respected or loved in, the their, very in their scene yeah. in the very beginning. And uh, then they added Charlotte Caffey, Gina Shock, and Kathy Valentine. Mm -hmm. And that's when stuff really took off for them. Mm -hmm. but they were really driven, mm -hmm. specifically Belinda Carlisle. Belinda wanted to be famous, yep. wanted to be signed by a big record label. Yep. And they would do whatever it took right. to achieve their goal. Yep. And what's interesting about them is that the mid-period, the pre-Beauty pre and the Beat period, they were a really, I would say, hot little punk band. Mm -hmm. They were, they played fast, they played hard, their songwriting chops were excellent, mm -hmm. and there's a lot that is available to listen to on their compilation, Return to the Valley of the Go-Go's. Mm which I highly recommend, that showcases them in a, in a rawer form than yeah. they became. And then they went on this ill-fated tour <laughs> with Madness in England, <laughs> and apparently they were like broke and penniless yeah. after this tour. They getting opened- spit on. Yep, getting in, in spit the, on. In the classic British style. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which is so funny in itself because madness to me is like super cuddly. Yeah, right. Like, they're, you they're know, like of all the like two-tone bands, they're the silly one-step beyond. Yeah, they're like nice. They always struck me as really nice boys yeah, when I watched exactly, those, those yeah. original videos. So the fact that they're, they're crowd... kind of like the bare-naked ladies of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of the two-tone scene. It, to tie it back, didn't we have a discussion? Yeah, we had a big discussion yeah, about bare-naked yeah, ladies yeah, last yeah, time. Yeah. And that's really funny for you to say because... <laughs> 
maybe if I was growing up in England at the time, I'd hate madness. Like the <laughs> right? way I hate Bare Naked Ladies. But I like madness too. I love yeah. madness. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole other in episode. In a really embarrassing story, mm-hmm. I played um, Our House at my brother's bar mitzvah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I think Our House is beautiful. And um, Wings of a Dove is one of my all-time favorite songs. Yeah. I think it's so beautiful. <laughs> So they were playing with madness. They were getting spit on. They were really disillusioned. They also cut a single of We Got the Beat for mm-hmm. Stiff Records, mm-hmm. which was not nothing to shrug at. Stiff Records, which is a British label that was releasing early Devo, Elvis Costello, The Damned, and Madness. Yeah. So, like, they were in really good company. single never it failed at that moment to hit properly mm-hmm. and they went back to LA and they were really really desperate for a record deal and they ended up getting signed by IRS mm-hmm. IRS was a smaller label mm-hmm. but as far as I'm concerned IRS had the coolest taste and they oh, really yeah. knew what was going on yeah they really got it they had Oingo Boingo at the time yeah. who are total geek music but are such a great band and yeah. who for me were very formative mm-hmm. and also at the time they had the Buzzcocks yeah. as well yeah. so I mean this is an interesting company for them to be mm-hmm. to be in and at the time IRS was being run by Miles Copeland. Yeah, the brother of Stuart Copeland from The Police. Yeah. Who they would later go on to tour with mm-hmm. uh, in promotion of this record, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also Miles Copeland was one of the masterminds behind Erg, A Music War, mm-hmm. which you, if you have never seen it, is just a film of like 30 punk new wave bands from the late 70s, early 80s, and it covers the New York scene, the LA scene, um, there's some stuff filmed in, in Frigis in France. There's mm. stuff in England. And it is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. So they signed them. Apparently, Go-Go's were a little disappointed they didn't get picked up by a major label. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted to make it. Mm-hmm. So they paired the Go-Go's with this producer named Richard Goderer. Mm-hmm. And Richard Goderer, he had been around since the 60s. He was a big Brill Building dude. He wrote my boyfriend's back. (laughs) That's so fucking cool. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. (laughs) That's such a good song. Um, He also wrote and produced I Want Candy Mm -hmm. for the Strange Loves, Mm -hmm. which is another song's phenomenal (laughs) and was basically the template for the whole bubblegum movement. Yeah. And then he also produced... Hang on, Sloopy, mm-hmm. which was basically the template for garage rock mm-hmm. and frat rock. Mm-hmm. So he had his fingers in a lot of popular music in the 60s. And a lot of the Go-Go's grew up uh, around that music mm-hmm. and were heavily influenced by it. Mm-hmm. And it, it ended up being a very fruitful match, mm-hmm. despite the fact that at the time it was very tumultuous for them to be working together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jane Whelan has said that her biggest influences as a songwriter, and she did a big bunch of the songwriting on this record, yeah. uh, were the Beatles and the Monkees. Yeah. 
So pairing her with uh, Richard Goddard seems like a total no-brainer to me. Yeah. But they got to New York. They recorded this album. They, on one hand, were partying all night mm-hmm. and coming into the studio hungover and not really ready to work. And on the other hand, they had an excess of songs and to narrow the songs down. Mm-hmm. And the songs that make it on this record are... Every song is so good. Yeah, it is just nonstop hits all of them. Every song is like full of like you know if you say it's like these are just like you know brill building pop songs like mm-hmm. these are simple pop songs with amazing hooks yeah it's just like hook after hook after hook after hook yeah every song has a really good hook yeah and and that definitely is due to Jane Weedland yep. and Charlotte Caffey yep. who are the primary songwriters mm-hmm. although the rest of them were no slouches when it comes to writing songs. Um, Ex- even Belinda? Well, Belinda Carlisle co-wrote Skid Marks on My Heart, which yeah. is actually a really interesting song yeah. and is about a lot. Yeah. Apparently it's about, she says it's about her brother, it's about her cat. <laughs> uh, it definitely uses a lot of uh, car racing imagery as yeah. well. And uh, But that song's really good. It's a good song. I would say it's the weakest song on the album, though. Would you argue that? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I would... <laughs> Mm, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that. Just yeah. thinking. Just because I'm not list. not not take, It is a great song. But yeah. This, this this album has so many uh, amazing, weird and offbeat songs like, fading fast to an extent and definitely automatic is yeah. like, you know, it's out. I mean, that's a Jane Weedland song, mm-hmm. and as we'll discuss later, mm-hmm. I love Jane Weedland, even her solo stuff. So. Um, even yeah, her solo stuff. Of course, of course her, her solo stuff. stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I say even just because I don't think she's gotten as much recognition as, dress recognition as she And that, I think what you're narrowing in on, on this album, is that although the production was bright and the playing was very pop-oriented, this album, there's a range of emotion going on on this yep. album. And, like, Automatic is really moody. Oh, yeah. And is also somewhat abstract. Yeah. In like, terms of lyrical content. And even musically, to an extent, especially compared to what they were doing, it's like a bit feels a bit disjointed and like mm-hmm. uh, floaty out in weir- this weird territory that it's, it's doesn't... It's ethereal. Yeah, in a way that all the other... It does... It hits you when you hear it. And they released it as, as a single, which is really... I find really odd and interesting, too. It's, it's ballsy. Yeah. It's a different type of song. I think it's more of a song. statement than a 
than mm-hmm. a you know some you know than um a trying fi- to be a hit. Yeah, a, fi- like, a financial move. Yeah. Because let's talk about the the high charting singles on this record, which they are classic, <sighs> classic, classic, classic. So let's start with "Our Lips Are Sealed." Okay, our lips are sealed. First of all, very interesting. The lyrical content is all about it's it's based on a relationship. Let, let's talk about that. Yeah, in 1980, I believe, or maybe early 81, the specials came to LA, and the Go Go's were opening for them for a few shows out there. And despite him having a very serious girlfriend back in the UK, uh, Jane Weedland started a sort of very as she described it, very serious and intimate uh, relationship with the special lead singer Terry Hall. And when he went back to England, they started a correspondence. Specific lyrics from the song were written through their correspondence back and forth to each other. And, and he, he's given a, a songwriting credit on this uh, song. Yeah, and it makes the song very unique for a pop single from this era. The song is about the words that are said between people that are not supposed to be repeated. And there is a lot about it that I think deals with distinctly uh, themes that women deal with Mm. in terms of gossip. Mm. And it's why having a, a band of women was so unique yeah. and why this album was such a smash. Mm-hmm. No one wanted to sign them because right. they were all women and they were considered a gimmick band. Right. When they were writing from a unique perspective that everybody in 1981 was ready for. Yeah. Which is great and it makes it groundbreaking. We wouldn't blink twice about an all-female group or, or women writing about these sorts of things but at the time mm-hmm. this, was, this was interesting stuff and tying in discussions about relationships that are in the undercurrent of the song and the undercurrent of the gossip that the song was inspired by Mm -hmm. and then tying in with that bridge jane's bridge that Mm -hmm. is a lullaby callback Mm -hmm. it sort of grounds the song in a a way that i think is really unique when it comes to the way a pop song is written i mean it's just a testament to the necessity and the power of diversity in i mean at the time obviously this was crazy but like these are the fact that they're writers is such a huge because you'd have had girl groups obviously but they are writing performing and playing all the music they i mean these are from a uniquely female perspective especially a song like our lips are sealed and to have that be commercially viable and accessible i mean it just smashed doors down and not enough credit can be given to them for that absolutely and they were really ballsy and they they knew that they worked as an ensemble Mm -hmm. and other people wanted to add men to the band and they would have none of it Mm -hmm. and and that's really exciting that's that was an amazing thing that happened and they they were at the forefront of an amazing place and time you know and of course it certainly helps that they were all totes gorgeous (laughs) you know uh but beyond that too to me the go-go's the way they were portrayed in their music videos and in live footage from the era 
Belinda Carlisle certainly is stunningly beautiful, mm-hmm. but also she has that butch haircut. Yeah. She is tough. Yeah. She strikes me as someone that you wouldn't necessarily want to hang out with oh, yeah. in a dark alleyway. No. I, she sort of reminds me of the girls in elementary school that would beat me up. <laughs> that's so, that's really interesting. And I, something that draws me to the Go-Go's and, you know, similar female groups, uh, like, or like a, a Joan, a Joan Jet type, a little to a lesser extent because she, she sort of played up the macho image. Mm-hmm. She didn't really do a cutesy girl thing at all, but... No. But maybe uh, like a band like Shonen Knife from Japan. Yeah, I um, like Shonen Knife. Yeah, yeah. Um, or girl groups that are kind of like not afraid to be feminine mm. and be cute because that's who they are. But then also play rock music and be you know somehow be tough and toe that line. It's just like you know I understand why you know you might cry talk you know because like girl like the Go Go's and. Like, girls, like, girl groups like that, it's like, you know, it's like Sailor Moon, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) it's like, she's a woman, and she's feminine, and she, intentionally, but she's gonna kick your fucking ass, Mm -hmm. and it's awesome. The, the legacy is unbelievable. Yeah. You you can't downplay the Go-Go's' legacy, Mm -hmm. and especially because at the time, they were considered very pop. Mm-hmm. They were rejected by their former oh, LA God. punk peers. They were way before this record came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were angry about it. Yeah, you know, they didn't like what it what the Go Go's turned into. Right. During reviews, you know, a lot of the early reviews of this album were like, "Yeah, the songwriting's good and the production's good, but like, it's still a little silly." Yeah. You know, they, it, it, people didn't get it right away because it was ahead of its time. Yeah. But something I was going to mention earlier in this podcast, that I forgot to, but it connects to this is. There's this band I'm really into right now that are three ladies from California who I just learned about literally this week from that Queer Music 101 uh, playlist that's called Muna. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of Muna? No. Muna is like a really good, slick dance band with really well-written songs. Hmm. And the it's comprised of three women, and all of them are queer, mm. and they have eliminated pronouns from their songs. Oh, that's cool. Which is so cool. And it's, yeah. And it's good. good. The music yeah. is fucking awesome. Oh, that's so cool. I highly recommend Muna. And I would say that without the Go-Go's, there would never have been anything like Muna. Oh, yeah. Where women in the industry would be allowed to write for that perspective. Right. And, and that's that's amazing, mm-hmm. you know. So let's talk a little bit about We Got the Beat. Sure. And... Uh, I, you know, so I would argue that We Got the Beat is absolutely one of the best songs of the era. Oh, God, yeah. Why do we think it's so good? What makes it so good? Uh, I think, it, like, it's unique. Well, I think when I got introduced to it, I, like many people, associate it with um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, it just captures the, like, fun, summer, uh, you know, high school, very youthful energy, but while still having... A, a, a punky edge. I don't know. I, 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 it just like defines that time so distinctly. Yes, this song, I would argue, 
transcends genre. Mm. It yep. certainly has a punk edge in terms of its guitar line. Mm -hmm. The drums, I think, are pure surf. Yeah, I was right, yeah. And the lyrical content, I would say, harkens back to dance songs from the 60s. 60s yeah. Very much like a song we discussed during our first podcast, which certainly has a relationship with Sheena as a punk rocker. Oh, yeah. But when I go out and DJ, I very often mix in We Got the Beat with my Sharona by uh, The Knack. Yeah. And also sometimes with Decepticon by La Tigra. Mm -hmm. And I think that that speaks <laughs> towards how versatile the song is. Yeah. And, and why I love it so much. And it's, it's such a banger. Mm -hmm. And it also could not be from anywhere other than L.A. Yep. It's like these women <laughs> who were all based around the area soaked in the culture and regurgitated it in a way that was far more intellectual and surprising than you would expect. Right. It's like uniquely, there's this like sense of humor and um, playfulness from that era that is so interesting, that I always find so interesting to me. Like the early 80s, like the sense of humor is so, like, uniquely goofy and silly mm -hmm. and sort of light mm -hmm. and really inoffensive in a way but the, the but that song is like has an edge to it mm -hmm. you know because they're like this is rock and roll music we're playing our guitars loud and we're gonna you know be a sort of edgy punky vibe but it's like it's that saying really fun light things but like with a sharp edge yeah and i think that that was intentional maybe yeah. Maybe like subconsciously so. I can't crawl into their heads and say that they were planning this, but the song is all about kids going out and dancing. The song is all about the end of school, the feeling that you get when you're leaving school, when it's time for the summer. Mm -hmm. That's very much what the song is about. And I think marrying it with sort of such a serious driving musical intent mm -hmm. is basically a statement that's saying this is enough. Mm -hmm. You know, these feelings that these kids are experiencing right now, this is enough to write a really, really, really good song about. And this is this is appropriately deep. Yeah. Would you say, just because we're talking about their sense of humor a little bit, mm -hmm. I feel like this would be a fun thing for us to touch on regarding this album. That whole early 80s aesthetic, we've talked about this a little bit, that punk new wave aesthetic. Do you feel it's influenced you as a performer, as a, as a comedian? Yes, in a weird way. Well, for one thing, I always associated that style and aesthetic and sense of humor with my uncle, who I, I like my cool uncle who I grew yeah. up with. Um, like who, you know, he gave me a rubber chicken when I was, you know, like that yeah. scene, like he, like for my birthday, when I was very young, he gave me a rubber chicken and that like, seems like that's the joke of the air, like a very, of that era. Yeah. I don't know if she, uh, what, um, better off dead with John mm -hmm. Cusack. Um, yeah. uh, which is a very punky movie. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, there's no real, I mean, the plot is very, uh, incidental or, but I, I just think, uh, I just, in terms of informing my own, uh, I think my own sense of humor, if you see me do improv or comedy, is like a combination of me trying to be charming and vulgar mm -hmm. at the same time. Maybe like very silly, but at the same time, like goofy, but not cute. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're not trying to be cute. Not trying to be cute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with the not trying to be cute thing for me. And I don't think they are trying to be cutesy. Like I cute because they're, they're good looking, but like mm-hmm. they are They're smart. They're, they're smart the and songwriting they're... is sharp. Right. And the humor is sharp. Yeah. I think that they belong under the same umbrella as a lot of other things that were going on in the 70s, early 80s in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would put them in the same place as the Groundlings mm. and in the same place as Pee Wee Herman. Mm, definitely. Uh, I would put them in the same place as there was a whole um, L.A. thrift shop aesthetic, recycled aesthetic that was mm. going on at I the time. I think Jamie Whelan worked in like a thrift shop and like designing clothes or something. She did. She designed yeah. punk clothes. Yeah. For a uh, store that was down, I think, in Hollywood. Uh, So, yes. Mm -hmm. And and they're tied to that. And all of this regurgitated 50s, 60s stuff through the lens of the kids that had grown up with it. Mm -hmm. And then for us, we're one, two generations removed from that. Yeah. You know, it was up to our cool uncles and (laughs) our cool relatives and, and family members and, um, and family friends to bestow this upon yeah. us. But for some reason, you know, I, I, I can't quite speak to it because I was so young, but like the first time that I saw Pee Wee's Playhouse, which totally comes from the Groundlings thrift shop aesthetic, mm-hmm. it felt like coming home. Mm. And and every time that I, you know, hearing this album for the first time felt like that as well. Yeah. And Seeing the Go-Go's in concert, and I, I can o- I can only say that this has happened to me a few times with live music, and it's an L.A. aesthetic. It's I can say that it's happened with me with the Go-Go's, with X, and with Brian Wilson. Mm. The way they write and the way they perform, it, it makes you feel like anything is possible. Mm. And there's a boundless yeah. optimism behind right. their sound. Yes. Which is what I was worried was going to make me cry. Because yeah. when I think about it, it really touches me in a place that even New York music, which I feel is so much a part of me as well, doesn't touch me in the same place. Yeah. Uh, that LA West Coast sound that springs from a lot of like pop dance craze stuff and sort of exploded it touches me like in this part of my heart that is unre- you know unreplicable by any other sort of music style i think i think you're dead on with that and i think like this album and that style of music but particularly this album and the go-go's like this is like morning music in terms of like you know what? Some you ever listen to something and you like walk to your train, walk to the train like I I can do it. like yes. you know it's like I'm gonna like yeah like like a like a like a jokey like you're high five and everyone on your block totally you're, you know you uh uh you know the paper boy throws you the paper you catch it it right in your hand like uh just this vibe of like yeah like and it is that's why they use it in the uh we got the beat in the first scene of uh fast times original high Definitely. that's the vibe it's like everyone come on down we're st- it's the start at the beginning we can like anything is possible we can keep going yeah uh, fast times which is such an la movie oh my god you know yeah. that movie couldn't have come from anywhere else yeah or from any other time period yeah yeah and i i want to segue into talking a little bit about the deeper tracks on this album mm-hmm. because I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking specifically of this town, yeah. which is 
one of Love the best song. songs written about LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really so much about how everybody wanted to be someone in a scene in LA mm -hmm. and how you either felt like you were an insider or an outsider in LA. And I, I think that's still the case based on my friends that live there and yeah. how they feel on literally a day-to-day -day basis. This You know, like our comedian friends, you know, right. one day they're hanging out with, you know, Chris Pratt in a coffee shop yeah. and they feel like they're in it. Right. And then the next day they are literally trying to figure out where the next paycheck comes right. from. And that's so much part of the life of living out there yeah. that is so encapsulated with that song and you know this town is our town this town is so glamorous bet you wish you could live here and be one of us yeah which is i think both written from an insider and outsider perspective and it's like it's sincere and also a little bit ironic yeah it's arch yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah you know so you know that song that song also always there's a bit of a tangent but for some reason that song specifically always reminds me of the writings of Francesca Lea Block, mm. who wrote these books called Dangerous Angels, which were basically about, they were fantasy, like uh, fantasy realism books about punk kids growing up in LA in the mm. late 70s, early 80s. Mm. And uh, the Go-Go's are mentioned in those books because mm. she music is a very sensual thing in those books and runs mm. through them. And those were a big influence on me sort of in early college. Mm. But this town, I feel, could have almost been written by Francesca Lea Block. <laughs> I think it's an interesting connection. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, what are some of your other favorite songs from that from this record? Uh, I love the song, the last uh, song on the album, Can't Stop the World, which is the only track written by the bass player, Kathy Valentine. And she was also the last person to join this iteration of the band, mm -hmm. and the most well-known popular iteration of the band. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I think it's a great, really fun pick me up way to end the album and um uh her songwriting style sort of matches and flows seamlessly um with uh the other songs on the album but she has this unique full sound that is is really striking This song has a big surf sound to yep. it and is about a pretty universal theme. The chorus is can't stop the world, why let it stop you? Yeah. And uh, that's definitely a mantra I've said to myself mm -hmm. many a time when yeah. I've been having a hard time with something. Yeah. And it's picked me up because it's it's literally just the truth in a really wise way for someone to write who is in their early twenties when they wrote this song. Yeah, it's definitely 
nice way to close out the album and I think a good way to close out uh, Talking our discussion about it. of uh, Beauty and the Beat. Yeah. A Beauty, timeless classic. A timeless classic. Absolutely. And for our deep cut, yeah. we're going to delve into the solo career of the Go-Go's. But we're not going to talk about Belinda's solo career, which is much documented and pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, awesome. I love Belinda. I love Belinda. But uh, <laughs> Kyle, there's a song that's near and dear to your heart. What is it? It is Jane Wheedland's Rush Hour from her 1988 album, Fur. <laughs> Okay. And I, like, this song, talk about making you want to cry. I love this song. Uh, How did you get exposed to this? How did you learn about this song? I can't remember. I cannot remember. And I think that's a test. I think I just, I think I just stumbled on it. Mm -hmm. And I think I first saw the music video, which is so crazy and hilarious. It's (laughs) Perfect, like describe it to us. It's Jane Weedland trying, well, successfully riding a dolphin. Yeah, it's, it's Jane Weedland <laughs> literally playing and straight chilling with dolphins. You're straight chilling with dolphins, and she's in a wetsuit the whole time, and the dolphin is like going up and down, and she's yeah. riding the dolphin, and then but she has that I don't know what you what do you call that like that it's so unique to that time of that background it's like blue where the water's like falling behind it yeah. and it's like a dutch angles yeah. you know what she's, i mean she's against like a blue screen yeah and then the blue screen is just of a water background yeah, yeah, yeah. and then it's just her in a <laughs> totally cute 80s outfit yeah playing her in guitar yeah oh, oh wait, 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 then the outfit yeah, 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 yeah. she's in this little like outfit with like these little like pom-pom bottles oh, God. on it so cute it's yeah. it's it's awesome it also is really funny because it has nothing to do with the song. Oh, absolutely <laughs> nothing. Because uh, that, that's always funny, too. Like, you know, music videos, when it's so clear, you're like, oh, God. Like, for example, it, just because it po- popped into mind, like, uh, the Wu-Tang song uh, Gravel Pit mm-hmm. from The W um, has nothing to do with an actual gravel pit, but the video for that song, they're all in like prehistoric times, mm-hmm. like Flintstone stuff. It's like, <laughs> I don't know what, like that sort of stuff makes me roll my eyes. I kind of love just like, you know what? This, I guess the, the song does sound sort of like, if I were to assign it an element, I would assign it water. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, someone said about this album that it's really uneven. Yeah. Fur, and that it seems like a lot of choices were being made by A&R as opposed to by, by yeah. Jane herself. And mm-hmm. Jane Wheedlin is like a creative, crazy freak lady. Oh, yeah. You know, she's like very well loved in the geek community. Oh, she God. is came out as being a dominatrix during a season of, of <laughs> the, the Surreal, Surreal Life. Life. Yeah. Which uh, was my first introduction to Jane Wheedland at all yeah uh, because I went through this phase of 7th grade where I like didn't really hang out with anyone I didn't go to anyone else's house and I just came home and watched <laughs> the worst TV uh, mostly on VH1 that was on at like you know 4 in the afternoon but I mean I'm sure she left a big impression on you oh, being man. like a cute punk rocker girl who was also into like slapping boys around yes oh my god (laughs) i'll never forget that i will never like but it was also kind of 
the way they presented it on the show was kind of shitty. Like she didn't get come off well on that show. Yeah. Um, which was really unfortunate, and I think it affected her pretty deeply, understandably. Like yeah. Um, because it's just a part about what makes her beautiful. Yeah, and, and I think they kind of like the music was like like Jane's a weirdo. Like it's an episode of like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly. If I remember correct, and like all the other people on the show were like, "Whoa, Jane's a freak," and it's just like kind of shitty but but she yeah it was awesome and like this song is like it, it just like and a lot of the good like some of the songs on this album are you roll their eyes out homeboy mm-hmm. is like it's a she literally used the word like don't put your hands on my homeboy mm-hmm. it's really kind of terrible inappropriate but, yeah inappropriate yeah. yeah and uh, <laughs> uh it's like so many um it's like pure pop and it's just like Jane Wheedland can write a fucking pop song. Yeah, the, and the chorus on this is gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's so so good. memorable and beautiful. Um yeah. yeah. It's 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 a really good song and it also represents something that I think is why the Go-Go's fell out of favor mm, is that right. the Go-Go's had a crunchier surf sound and were much more 60s influenced. Yeah. And by the time these women had their late 80s careers, it's like all the bumps have been smoothed out. Right. And I would say that they, you know, both Jane Weedland's career and Belinda Carlisle's solo career, it's like pure synth radio yeah. pop. Yeah. And it's almost like they were trying to vie for like a spot in like the Madonna pantheon. Yes, definitely. Right? Yeah. But they didn't. They didn't pull it off they because didn't pull it, off. it was it was sort of putting a, 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 a like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, I I I think yeah, I think part of what made them so special as the Go Go's was the edge. It yeah, was, you know, and you totally lose that. It's, but there's something about it. First of all, it's just a beautiful, fun, pretty pop song. I think it is very of its time and i think yes. it's it's aged well only in so far as we now like you look back and you just want a pure oh yeah like condensed no frills 80s synth pop sound this is what you're gonna get definitely and because it isn't as well known yeah i would argue for anybody that likes that sort of sound like people that are really into like circa lucky star madonna uh-huh. or circa cherish madonna yeah or like early Cindy Lauper as yeah. well, which I really love. And actually, uh, Cindy Lauper and Jane Weedland collaborated on a song for her next, much worse, horribly maligned, and didn't even make crack the Billboard 200. Her next album, Tangled, mm-hmm. um, and which I should mention also that Rush Hour is not oh, as well known a song as it should be, mm-hmm. and probably because it really didn't age well for a long time i mean i said it aged well but only because like from a nostalgic perspective but like i mean this is 88 so yeah grunge is right around the corner yeah and Jane, you know and she's not and she's on she the way fare, out she didn't fare well no she didn't um, she didn't but actually in researching the song i found some killer remixes of this song oh, from really? the late 2000s Ooh. from like 2007 2008 where the song was embraced by like the euro dance community yeah and i completely get that because oh, the yeah. hook is so good and is so good for a dance song so the song actually had a whole other life and was discovered by a different generation and did did do well for her later on in her in her musical career that's I, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And um, I'll put one of those remixes on the Spotify playlist. Yes. Yeah. And just as 
This song was uh, uh, embraced by a new audience 10 years ago in the Euro dance community. I hope that this introduction will introduce it to a new generation for all of our millions of listeners. Um, (laughs) uh, I hope you go out and check this song out because it is a beautiful pop classic. Yes, we want Rush Hour to chart. Yes. Like, tomorrow. Let's put Rush Rush Hour Hour back back on on the the charts. Yeah. Oh, so listen, this concludes another episode of Kick the Jukebox. Kyle, I mean, this is, feel like a broken record at this point, but this is so much fun. Yeah! I, I love this. Yeah. Uh, check us out on Twitter at KTJB Podcast. Check us out on Facebook at Kick the Jukebox. Throw some bucks to our Patreon if you want. We're on Tumblr at kickthejukebox.tumblr.com. So there's lots of ways to find us. We're on all the podcatchers. Please recommend us to your friends. Word of mouth is the best advertising for a little geeky show like this. For our album next month, Get Excited, we're going to be giving our own unique criticism and perspective on an album that has been talked about a hell of a lot. Probably the one that's been explored the most out of all of these albums that we've talked about so far. However, we're excited about it because it's so cool and awesome. We're going to talk about little Fleetwood Mac, or as I like to call them, Fleetwood Crack, because they're so addictive. <laughs> and we're going to talk about rumors. I'm to say has taken my place. Yeah, so join us then. It's going to be really exciting and awesome. This has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louis Perlman. I'm Kyle Gordon. And catch you on the flip side. Another classic. Another classic.